please wait. Oh! All right, our passage tonight is from Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 6 through 11. As we continue to make our way through the book of Romans, uh, let me read for us Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray for us as we get started. God, I pray as we look at your word tonight, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us our great need for you, And God, you would show us how deep your love is for your people. Lord, I pray that you would be convicting each of our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see your truth. And God, most of all, that you'd be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was going to start tonight, not how I normally start, with a video. And I was going to show uh, a sermon jam by Paul Washer, actually on Romans 3.23. Uh, But clearly, as you saw earlier, the uh, videos aren't quite working. Uh, Thank you, Andy, for the wonderful winter camp video you made, by the way. Uh, And so I'm not going to be able to start with that. If if you want to write that down, I do encourage you to look that up later. You can write Paul Washer, Sermon Jam, Romans 3.23. Very, very good. I think I referenced it uh, years ago. Very, very good. uh, Just clip of one of his sermons. And what I want to pull out, out of it, the, the thing I really liked about his sermon jam here is that uh, one of his main points, Paul Washer's main points in that was understanding that the, the, the darkness of our sin helps us to understand better the love of God. That if, if, if we don't understand, we don't teach and we don't believe in the darkness of our own humanity and our sin, our sinfulness, then we won't be able to fully understand and grasp the great love of God. Now, Paul here in this in uh, Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul continues to talk about the blessings for those who are truly justified. If you remember chapter 4, he's talking all about being justified through faith. And if you were here when we were talking about chapter 5, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he starts talking about these blessings of those who are truly justified in Him. And now in these verses, 6 through 11, he paints a dark but true picture of the natural heart of man. And in doing so, he then clearly shows the amazing, great love of God. He shows both. We see it's important to see this dark picture of the natural human, of who we are apart from Christ. And it's sad but true that there are many pastors today, there are many 
giant churches filled with thousands and thousands of people who sit in those seats listening to a message about how great they are and how that must be why God loves them so much. Because they're such a great person. That is not what the Bible says at all. We must go to Scripture to understand the truth of who we are without Christ and who we are with Christ. Now, I understand that fear. I understand the reservation of, of preaching the reality of our natural state. People already deal with depression and they already deal with insecurities and not feeling good about themselves and all these things. So why should the preacher continue just to slam them and tell them how horrible they are when they probably already struggle with that? Why, why should the preacher do that? The answer? Because it's true. Because it's the truth. And because knowing this truth helps us better understand how amazing God's love truly is. If we teach or we believe or we think that God loves us because we are somehow desirable or we are somehow lovely, then we lose the appreciation and we shortchange the deep deep love of God. We must see God's love up against the truly deep, dark background of our sin. And that is what Paul does here in this passage. So tonight we're going to look at two sides. It's really that simple. We're going to look at the dark side, which is ourselves, and we're going to look at the bright side, which is God. Don't think Star Wars, you know, the whatever, the, the dark side and the, what's the other side? Light side, something like that. Yeah, don't think like that, all right? See, Miguel, you were thinking that, right? Yeah, no. Okay, the dark side, which is ourselves, and the bright side, which is God. So first, our first section, we're going to look at four aspects of the natural human in the dark side. So the dark side ourselves, the first aspect is that the natural human is powerless. When I say the natural human, I mean who we are naturally in our humanity apart from Christ. The natural human is powerless. And that comes from verse 6. For while we were still weak, now the ESV translates it as weak. The NASB says helpless, says while we were still helpless, and I think that's a little bit better. I actually think the NIV has it best, and I don't typically like the NIV translation, but in this case I do think they have it best here, and they say powerless, that while we were still powerless. I think only the strongest term here fits the context and the point that Paul is making. That in our natural state, we are completely powerless. That we are helpless. That we are weak. That we are unable to do what we need to do. We see this all throughout Scripture. We're unable to understand spiritual things, says 1 Corinthians 2.14. We're unable to seek after God, says Romans 3.11. We're unable to respond to God as we are dead in our trespasses and sins, says Ephesians 2.1. We're unable to do good, says Romans 3.12. See, we are powerless without Christ. Now this, this that, that teaching, the fact that apart from Christ and in our natural state, we are completely powerless, this goes against all other religious teaching. Because religion says that you have the power to make yourself right before God, that you have the power to do enough, that you do enough good and you can earn God's love, that, that you can sway God into accepting you, that you have some kind of power to do that. Earlier this week, I was driving my car. I turned on my car. A Christian radio station came on. I'm not going to say which Christian radio station, but it was one that broadcast in this area. 
And the lady literally said, I, I kid you not, she said, it's time to rescue yourself. You have the power to set yourself free. I literally out loud by myself in my car said, what are you talking about? On Christian radio, you just said you have the power to set yourself free? No, you are powerless to do so. Only Christ has that power. So please understand that you attending youth group or you attending church or you living a, quote, good Christian life does not make you right before God. You have no power within yourself to make yourself right before him. You are powerless to do so. Now, if you're here tonight and you are a Christian, Christian, don't forget this was you too. Christian, remember that you are not a Christian because you had some power to choose God. That, that, that you're, you're not a Christian because you, you had some power to, to make the smart decision to become a Christian. Say, so, you know what? I weighed out all the evidence and I'm a pretty smart guy, so I, I chose to be a Christian. You were utterly powerless when God met you. And it is only by His grace that you are saved, not because of some power within yourself that you can set yourself free. It is only by the grace of God. So first, the natural human is powerless. Second, we see that the natural human is ungodly. It says again in verse 6, For while we were still weak or powerless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's your second point. The human, the natural human is ungodly. Now, this word ungodly here doesn't mean that we are unlike God. Sometimes that's what ungodly can mean. And that is true. We are unlike God. But this word specifically that Paul uses here means that we are in opposition to God. That we are ungodly. We are opposed to Him. We are opposed to who He is. God is sovereign. That's who He is. But we oppose His sovereignty as we don't want Him to have complete rule and authority over our lives. Instead, we want to do as we please. We're opposed to who God is. God is holy and just. But we oppose His holiness. We oppose His justice as we don't want to accept His law or His standards. Instead, we want to act in opposition to His law. We oppose who God is. God is omniscient. But we oppose His omniscience, becoming angry that we can't hide everything or anything really from Him. But instead, He knows our thoughts. He knows the sins that we keep hidden. He knows it all. And we dislike that. See, the natural man is in direct opposition to God. And instead chooses to live and act as if God does not even exist. Our posture to God is the complete opposite of what it should be. Right? Instead of speaking words of praise to Him and what He deserves, we speak words that curse Him and that are sinful. Instead of using this life, the one life that He's given to us for His glory, we use it to sin against Him. Instead of giving Him thanks for the skills and the talents that He's given us, we take the glory for ourselves. Instead of bowing the knee to Him in worship, we turn our backs to Him and we give Him the middle finger. You see, our posture is completely opposite of what it should be. We, apart from Christ, we are in direct opposition to God. We are ungodly. We do not give Him the worship and the glory that He deserves. 
Next, we see that the natural human is a sinner. Is a sinner. It says in verse 8, But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners. What does this mean? What does it mean that we're a sinner? It means that we've fallen short of God's standards, right? Romans 3.23, the, the sermon jam that I wanted to show tonight, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we don't live up to His standards. No matter how much we might think we do, we do not. We cannot please God in the flesh, says Romans 8.8. 8. In the flesh, as in our natural self, in our natural flesh, without the Holy Spirit in us, we cannot please God. That means that in our natural state, if you are not a Christian, no matter how many good works, good works you think you are doing, it is not pleasing to God. We are sinners through and through. All of us. You see, we sin because we are sinners. That's who we are. And our sin has earned us the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. And in our natural state, and because we've broken God's law, we deserve the wrath of God. It says that in verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is what we deserve. There's no question about it. There's no arguing. There is no avoiding it. That is the truth, that we are sinners and we deserve the wrath of God and left on our own apart from Christ. That is exactly what we will receive. I was talking to someone the other day. Actually, I think it was Nick. And uh, we were talking about the length of eternity. Do you remember this, Nick? We are talking about the length of eternity. He was telling me, he was talking to someone about it. And the person said this, something along these lines, that after spending, so just imagine eternity, after spending one billion years in the lake of fire receiving the wrath of God, you will not be one second closer to getting out of the lake of fire, receiving the wrath of God. You understand that? You can spend one billion years in the lake of fire, receiving the wrath of God, and you're not one second closer to being done. That's eternity. And this is what where every sinner deserves to be. And that is where every sinner, apart from Christ, will be. That is what we deserve. The wrath of God. Now next and last in this section, in the dark side, you can see it is a pretty dark side, is that the natural human is an enemy. The natural human is an enemy. He says in verse 5, for if while we were enemies, the natural human is an enemy. Now, this in some way is a summary of the past three. Being powerless, being ungodly, being a sinner, we can affirm that we are God's enemies too. Well, this is much greater, right? This is what it leads to, being God's enemies. And we are so opposed to God. We're much like Satan in that we desire to drag God off his throne, to be our own king, to be our own God. To become enemies of God. In fact, if possible, 
I would argue that if possible, we would take God, we would oppose His word, we would ridicule Him, we would mock Him, we would attempt to stop His work, and we would ultimately try to kill Him. And how do I know this? Why would I say this? Because it is exactly what man did to God in the person of Jesus Christ. See, in our natural self, we are God's enemies. And we hate Him. We are opposed to Him. Now, if you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, maybe you don't feel opposed to Him. Maybe you're like, I know I'm not a Christian, but I don't feel like this hatred. I don't feel like His enemy. I don't feel that opposed to Him. But if you are not in Christ, I assure you, you are His enemy, says God's Word. And it's not that you are more graced by God. And and so even though you're you're not a Christian, maybe you're not as much of an enemy as those who who adamantly hate God. Like there are those people who say, yeah, I hate God. And since I don't say that, maybe I'm not as much of an enemy as those people. If you are here and you think, if that describes you, you're here and you think you are neutral to God, it is not because you are any closer to Him than those who say they hate Him. It's not that those people who say they hate Him are so far away, but you're pretty close, you're neutral. No, it is that you have become more deceived by the enemy and you are in a more dangerous position. Because that person knows. But you are fooling yourself, thinking me and God are okay. But you're not. You and God are enemies. And you will remain enemies unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ, in which then you will have peace with God. As we read about just a couple weeks ago in chapter 5, verse 1. Do not fool yourself. Do not be deceived by Satan, non-Christian. You are an enemy of God. Now, Christian... This is exactly where you were. Do you remember? This is exactly where you were, Christian. And it's exactly where you would be if it were not for the grace of God. So praise be to God that He extended grace, that He opened your eyes to see, that He gave you a new heart, and that He saved you. Because you're no longer His enemy, Christian. You've been adopted into His family, and you're a child of His. Because of his great love and his great mercy and grace. Which brings us to the good news. Which brings us to the hope. Which brings us to our next section. The bright side. God. Right? We've been looking. Oh man, this is a dark side. Look at ourselves. Ouch. But now, the bright side. God. We'll look at a few aspects here in this section. First, God's love is displayed despite our wretchedness. Despite it. God's love is displayed despite our wretchedness. Paul's goal is to clearly paint a picture of of how amazing and how unique God's love is. And he does this first by giving an example of love that maybe we've seen or we've experienced ourselves. And that's human love. And the pinnacle of human love The great expression of love that we can show to someone is by giving up of our life for someone else, right? Like, that's the pinnacle of love. Like, if I'm going to show love to someone, how do I show it? Like, if if I gave up my life. 
And maybe we would do that. Maybe we would do that to someone that we love very much. Maybe we would do that to someone who loves us. Maybe you, you would give up your life for a spouse. Or you would give up your life for, for your own child. Or maybe you, you give up your life for a combat buddy, right? Like you're off in war. Like this we can imagine. We can imagine someone giving up their life for someone who, who they love, who means so much to them. Maybe we've heard stories of that. We've heard stories of, of, of combat buddies giving up their life. We've heard stories of so-and-so giving up their life for their child. And when we hear those stories, we're like, wow, what incredible act of love. That they would even give up their life for their child. That they would give up their life for their wife. That they give up their life for, for their combat buddy. Whatever it might be. And we're like, wow, that's incredible. But God's love is so different. God's love is different than what I just described. See, God sent His own Son. And Jesus, God the Son, died for a people who hated Him. That's the difference. He died for those who were powerless. Who were ungodly. Who were sinners, who were his enemies. See, Paul's point is that, that it's, it's uncommon for a man to die for another man. Although he might, like, it, you know, it's pretty uncommon. But he might die for another man uh, if, it's, if it's for the right person, someone close to them, maybe someone of high character, uh, someone of great importance. Then someone, a man might die for another man. But to die for someone who's wicked? Not a chance. To die for an enemy? To die for someone who, who hates you? For, for someone who's in complete contradiction of you? You're going to die for that person? Like, if, if, if we were good, if we were lovely, then, then maybe, maybe we would justify why God would die for us. But even so, it would be like, wow, what an incredible act of love. I mean, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty lovely. But wow, even God died for me. That's crazy. But it's not even close to this. It's not that we're good. It's not that we're lovely. The, the fact that God would die for us, it shouldn't even be on the table. Like, what are we even talking about? It shouldn't even be a conversation. There's no chance that this should even be an option. That the God would die for us. And yet, if you are in Christ, God loved you. And He died for you. Do you, see, do you see how amazing it is that God would reach out and initiate love towards us despite our wickedness? Like, remember, we were powerless. Powerless to escape the grip of our sin. Powerless to escape death. Powerless to please Him. Powerless to save ourselves from His wrath. And then God sent His Son to die on our behalf. We were ungodly. We were sinners. This is the God who hates sin more than anything. Who, who hates every sinful thought. Who hates every sinful action. And yet who are we? We are dripping in sin. Like we are the essence of what He hates. is sin. And we tolerate sin in others. Sometimes, like, right? Because... Because we're sinners. They're like, yeah, I get it. Like, right? Yeah, I'm a sinner. And so sometimes we tolerate it. But even so, we hate it when others sin against us. Even though we're a sinner too. We still hate it when they sin against us. But what about God? What about God? We sin directly against Him. And He cannot tolerate sin. He has no sin. He is sinless. And He hates sin. 
And yet he who knew no sin became sin for us. Wow, that's love. God died for the ungodly. He died for the sinner. And what else? We were his enemies. And yet God died for us. God reconciled us to himself. Not after we were made good. But he says right here, while we were enemies. Verse 10. But if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were his enemy. Why would you die for an enemy? Why would you die for an enemy? Like the goal is to defeat your enemy. To end your enemy, right? To conquer your enemy. Not to die for your enemy and save them. That's not what we do for our enemy. And yet it says while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Like, is it just me? Like, when I'm studying this, I'm like, what is going on here? I I, I feel so inadequate to even attempt to describe God's love. Like, I'm trying to, but I feel like I can't even do it. This is why Paul paints a picture of darkness, so we can better see the brightness of his love. I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know any human words that can possibly and fully explain the love of God. I can't. I tried. I thought. And I'm like, yeah, you know what I want to say? Like, the, the love of God is great. Like Ephesians 2, 4 says, like, his, his love is great. But what? We're not great. What is great? We say great all the time. Hey, how was the new Spider-Man movie? Oh, it was great. You know, how was winter came? Oh, such a great time. The waiter comes by. Hey, how, how's... How is your sandwich? Oh, so great. Like what? Like God's love is certainly greater than any of these things. I, I don't know. How can I properly express God's love? I don't know. All I can say is that his love is the greatest thing in all of eternity. And nothing comes close. Nothing comes close. His his love is the greatest gift. His love is eternal. And His love is all I need. (laughs) I I don't have the words. But if you are in Christ, you know this love. Right? And you know there is nothing greater. Do not forget, Christian. Do not forget how awesome and amazing His love is. Even while in wretchedness. He still loved us. Next, we see that God's love is eternally reliable. Is eternally reliable. Paul argues here from the greater to the lesser. If you caught in our reading, right, he he describes the situation and then he compares another situation. That form of writing is arguing from the greater to the lesser. That, that if, if the greater is true, then the lesser must also be true. For instance, if someone said, I can lift 20 pounds, then it also must be true that they can lift 10 pounds. Right? If the greater is true, then the lesser also must be true. And here, Paul attempts to describe God's love by giving us an example of God's love towards Christians, and then explains how the lesser, more easy way to love must also be true. Let me explain. Okay. 
In arguing from the greater to the lesser, Paul's point is that if God saved us, if he justified us, if he brought us into his family while we were his enemies, as he just said, then he will certainly save us from the outpouring of God's wrath in the end since we're already his children. That's his point. Okay, John MacArthur put it this way. He said, quote, It is a greater work of God to bring sinners to grace than to bring saints, that is Christians, to glory. Because sin is further from grace than grace is from glory. End quote. You understand what he's saying? That if God demonstrated such a great love towards us while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, then now, now that we're adopted into his family, then of course he's going to continue to love us. Of course we're going to see glory, right? Like, look at how much he loved us. Look at the great way in which he loved us, even when we were wretched, like we just talked about. And so that's true. Then know with confidence that his love for you remains. Now you're his child. Of course he's going to still love you. God's love is reliable. It is eternally reliable. And yet sometimes, Christian, do we not doubt his love? Are there not times that we doubt his love for us? We question his love. And we want God to prove his love toward us. Like how, how, how insulting for us to ask God to prove his love for us. Like, God, uh, I think you need to do a better job proving your love for us as if he, doesn't ha- like he hasn't done enough to already prove his love. So we ask him, God, prove it. I, I, I doubt your love. And he's patient. And he's patient. And he proves it over and over again. And he continues to bless his children. <laughs> He continues to bless them. It's it's from God's own gracious hand that we receive food. It's from His own gracious hand we receive clothing and health and and fellowship and love from others. And yet we still doubt His love. We don't deserve any of that. And on top of all just the, the, the practical worldly blessings, the Christian has immeasurable riches of His grace, says Ephesians. And yet we still doubt Christian, if, if you ever find yourself in that place of doubt, go back and look at the cross and see the fullness of God's love displayed. Look at Christ and see the beaten and bruised and bloody dying Savior being crushed by the Father. And doubt no more. See, Christian, we have no reason to doubt God's love. And I know there are times that we do. I've been there. I know we can doubt His love, but go back to the promises and truths of God and remember His love for you. His love for you is not just for today, but it is always, it is forever, it is eternal. And we can have confidence in the security of God's love. His love will not run out. His love will not change. His love will not fail. If He loved us as enemies, He certainly loves us as His children. Do not, do not doubt God's love, but know with confidence that God's love is reliable. Lastly, we see that God's love 
is worthy of rejoicing. God's love is worthy of rejoicing. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, before when we looked at chapter 5, verse 2, in verse 2, Paul said to rejoice in the hope of the glory to come. And then in verse 3, he said, rejoice in our sufferings. And now in verse 11, he says, rejoice again for the third time. But this time he says, rejoice in God. Rejoice in God. Is that not the greatest of all to rejoice in? To rejoice in Him. Rejoice in God and the reconciliation that we have through Jesus Christ. See, when you remember the darkness and the reality of, of, of who you are apart from Christ, and then you see this great love in which you receive, and you see in which you've been saved from, then you bet you will rejoice. Like when you see that, the dark side, and you're like, man, that's who I was, and I deserve his wrath. Then you see he has saved you, and he loves you. How can you not rejoice in him? And we rejoice about so, so many things. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I rejoice. I, I, I got a top score in, in Tetris or whatever you guys play. I don't know. Uh, you know, I got, I got, yeah, I rejoice. I got, I got all A's. You know, I rejoice. I, yeah, I won the winning shot. Like, ah, oh, we rejoice. Like, all these things. In the end, like, they're so little. But we rejoice, like, so great about them. Do we rejoice in the greatest thing ever? God's love? Do you take joy in the love of God? Do you give Him thanks and praise for the love and the grace that you've received? This is love fuel you to love others and to love God more. Do you rejoice in the love of God? What is it that hinders you from rejoicing in God? Maybe it's different for each of you. Maybe you share some of the same reasons, but but there are reasons why. Like, what hinders you from rejoicing in God? Are you filled with self righteousness? That the grace and love of God, when you see it, it no longer seems amazing because I'm pretty good. Are you so distracted by the things of this world that the things of God and eternal matters mean nothing to you? Because you're consumed by the things here of this world? Do your circumstances determine when you rejoice or not? That if things are going well, if they're going according to you, then you rejoice. But when things aren't going like you wanted, then... Maybe it's hard for you to find reason to rejoice. What is it that hinders you from rejoicing? I encourage you, I challenge you to remember the truths of God. Remember His great love and power and wisdom and grace and mercy and goodness. Remember these things. Remember your great need for Him. And remember how he has met your greatest need. Right? We've seen it. We've seen our great need. But we see also that he has met that need. And remember the eternal riches. And remember the security that you have in him. And remember the hope that is to come. Well, Christian, you you may experience trials. Christian, you may experience suffering. 
But we will always have something greater to rejoice in. Greater than your suffering, greater than your trials. Christian, we always have the love of God. And in that we can rejoice. As we close tonight, I hope you were able to see as best as possible the deep love of God. And it starts by understanding the dark reality of your human nature. It starts there. And maybe you are here and, and, and you don't appreciate His love. Maybe you don't understand how great and how vast and how awesome His love truly is. It very well may be because you have never really thought of yourself in the way that the Bible describes you, which is utterly hopeless, fallen, and in need of a Savior, in need of Him. That you are powerless, ungodly, a sinner, and His enemy. But that is what you are, non-Christian. That is what you are. And until by the grace of God that you are justified by faith in Christ, this is who you will remain to be. But my hope and my prayer for you is that God would open your eyes to see your need for Him. And that He would grant you the faith in Him and repentance of your sin. That is my prayer for you. And if you are a Christian, if you're here tonight and you are a Christian, always remember and never doubt the deep love that God has for you. Don't doubt His love. Remember the state you were in in which He loved you. Remember that. Don't forget it. And know with confidence that His love never runs out. God's love is deeper and it is greater than than eternity past is greater than eternity future than any of your past sins any of your future sins God's love is greater so Christian let this love give you joy and let this love motivate you to live for God in all things despite your circumstances despite your suffering despite the suffering that it may bring to live for God be emboldened and find joy in living for Him. I pray that you would see and truly know the deep, deep love of God. As we close, let's take a couple minutes of silent prayer where you are and pray about these things. If you're not a Christian, maybe reflect on who you are right now apart from Christ. And realize your need for Him. And pray that He would give you the faith and repentance. If you are a Christian, use this time. Again, to remember who you are apart from Christ. And give God praise for the love and the grace in which He's given to you. Take this moment of silent prayer and then I'll close this in prayer in a little bit.